Hi everyone, welcome to this podcast from Cambridge Health Tech Institute for the Antibodies for Cancer Therapy Track at PEGS, which runs May 4th and 5th in Boston, Mass. I'm Christina Lingham, the conference director for the PEGS conference. We have with us today one of our speakers from the conference, Michael Curran, Assistant Professor of Immunology at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Michael will be giving a talk in May on identification and translation of optimal immunotherapy combinations. Michael, thank you for joining us. Uh, Thank you for having me. The field of immunotherapy is very exciting, holds great promise. Can we start by having you define immunotherapy? Well, really, I think the simplest definition is just therapies that seek to restore the capacity of the immune system to immunologically reject cancer. And the, the key thing is probably restore. In the end, your body has the capacity to recognize anything that's different from normal as foreign and reject it. Cancer being no different from a cell infected with a viral pathogen has genetic mutations, has misexpressed cells, and and should be recognized as foreign by the immune system. However, through adaptation, cancers evolve mechanisms for locally depressing and evading the immune system. And therefore, it's not really a problem of recognition. It's a problem of loss of capacity for rejection. And so with immunotherapy, we're trying to restore that capacity. We're basically undoing the adaptations that the tumor has taken on to shield or hide itself from the immune system. And when those are blocked, we see amazing capacity for the immune system to reject established metastatic cancers. So, Michael, what are your views on the limitations of monotherapy? Well, many of us were frankly surprised at how effective some monotherapies, such as blockade of CTLA-4 or PD-1, can be. But the truth is, if we look at the origins of cancer immune evasion, you see that tumors as they develop deploy really a very multi-layered web of immunosuppressive mechanisms. And so with monotherapy, either blocking one of these sort of switches that tumors try to engage to switch off the immune system, such as something like CTLA-4 in a T-cell, we can restore some of that capacity that's been lost. But the truth is there are so many levels of immune suppression, whether it's at the level of T-cell suppression, which is to a large extent what current therapies have focused on, anti-PD-1, anti-CTLA-4, anti-OX-40, this kind of thing, but also myeloid suppression, not just loss of successful myeloid antigen presentation in the tumor microenvironment, but also tumors sort of surround themselves with this barrier of suppressive myeloid cells, be they... MDSC or type 2 polarized tumor-associated macrophages. And in addition, there's suppression at the level of stromal components, such as myofibroblasts. Tumors adjust their vasculature to lock out the immune system. And so the limitation of any kind of monotherapy is we can really only address one of these many adaptations. And so without combinations, we're sort of picking off the most effective one of 10 let's say, targets that we'd really want to hit. But the other nine can still maintain a very strong fortified barrier of immune suppression, even once we've chipped off the best one that we could target. So can you describe your approach for inducing immune response through combination therapy? We start by studying the origins of immune suppression in the tumor microenvironment, absent treatment, or occasionally in response to monotherapy. And looking at these sort of mechanisms of immune suppression We try to identify the causes of single-agent failure and then try to avert them through combinations. And going beyond that, we'll see where immunity has failed in the tumor microenvironment because of various barriers a tumor has deployed to block immune rejection. And so we'll look for complementary relationships between 
whatever our monotherapy agent we're testing and other agents that may address these deficiencies, we'll look for complementary relationships between these that, that might have the potential for synergy more than just sort of additive effects. And those relationships can take on a number of forms. For instance, some things that we've looked at are two agents that hit distinct critical targets that tumors depend on for immune suppression. Also, uh, two agents where one is sort of averting an escape mechanism that we know tumors will engage to evade and relapse after one agent. For instance, we know if we block CTLA-4, PD-1 comes up. And so if we block CTLA-4 and PD-1, we've sort of blocked the easiest out that the tumor has to evade our first therapy uh, from the get-go, and therefore we get much stronger responses. In a rare case we're studying right now, we're looking at two agents which don't just cooperate therapeutically, but actually one helps block the side effects of the other and vice versa. So they each improve one another's efficacy, and they minimize the associated toxicities for one another. So it's a very complementary relationship in that regard. That sounds really sophisticated. Can you describe how your approach is different from other existing approaches and how it complements them? Well, you know, the the traditional approach to identifying, for instance, small molecule combinations was through high put uh, in vitro screening of all possible combinations. But when we look at immunotherapy, those kind of approaches aren't possible because really with the complexity of the immune microenvironment as well as the immune system itself, we have to evaluate these combinations in vivo. And so with 100 possible monotherapies, how do you evaluate those countless number of combinations pairwise, for instance, in an in vivo setting? The, the reality is that you can't. And so our approach, again, is to focus on the underlying biology to guide us to the most potentially effective combinations, get that number down to a manageable set of pairs, and then assay those and study their detailed effects in in vivo tumor models. And so, again, our approach is driven by studying why we fail in terms of immune rejection of a given tumor, identifying potential combinations that could address those failures based on the known mechanisms of each of those monotherapies, and then trying a limited number of them in a pairwise context. And I think what other people are doing is the more detailed monotherapy uh, characterization there is for each of these targets or antibodies or other agents, the better we can find ways to integrate them into combinations based on seeing what's going on in terms of the tumor microenvironment and immune suppression. That's a wonderful explanation. So do you have advice for selecting immunotherapy combinations from what you've learned? I guess the simplest advice would be let the biology guide you. Also in the broadest sense, try to address as many of the distinct areas of tumor immune failure as possible rather than focusing on a single cell type. For instance, we're only combining agents that affect T cells, we're only combining agents that affect myeloid cells, stromal cells, et cetera. So what we try to do to look for the most effective combinations is we try to combine agents, again, that either have some sort of special synergistic relationship, but also that try to hit multiple sort of cogs, distinct cogs in this wheel of immune suppression in the tumors. We want to hit one target that will disable suppressive myeloid cells and another target that will help activate T-cell responses, et cetera. So we're hitting sort of distinct cell populations or molecular pathways, and therefore the results are more likely to be uh, synergistic rather than just additive. That's great. In your opinion, what are some of the most exciting applications emerging in combination therapy that's not possible with monotherapy? Well, if we look at 
one of the most successful combinations thus far, the combination of CTLA-4 and PD-1 antibodies, for instance, the BMS, ipilimumab, nivolumab trial. We know that molecular synergy between some of these pathways is possible, which drives really transformative clinical outcomes. Bob Schreiber's work in the mouse and Mario Snell's group at Yale in patients have shown that hundreds of genes in T-cells are activated by the combination of CTLA-4 and PD-1 blockade that are not touched by monotherapy with either agent alone. Also with monotherapy, you're usually limited to a single cell type to boost or protect. With combinations, we can sort of play offense and defense at the same time. For instance, activating a T-cell response through a co-stimulatory agonist while at the same time blocking inhibition through a co-inhibitory or checkpoint blocking antibody. And I think one of the most exciting applications is really this idea that we can have synergistic effects both at the cellular and molecular level and that those actually translate toward synergistic therapeutic outcomes. Again, just using the the CTLA-4-PD-1 combination and what we've seen in terms of effects on T-cells as well as in clinical responses in melanoma as an example. I think that's great. So one more question, Michael. If your combinatorial strategy eradicates cancer-initiating cells and is T-cell-based, how does this combinatorial approach overcome the problems caused by defects in the HLA class 1 APM components frequently present in tumor cells? Well, one aspect of the question is how widespread is really severe class 1 deficiency? We do see it in certain contexts, such as tumors that have a high mutational load, perhaps have a higher propensity to have defects in class 1 antigen presentation. Where that occurs, I think there are a couple things to consider. One is there may be cells, it's usually not all the cells in a tumor that have class 1 defects, and it's possible it could be on some sort of initiating cell. So, you know, is immunotherapy hopeless in those contexts? Well, even in a case where you lack the direct ability for a T cell to recognize and kill, let's say, a class 1 deficient tumor-initiating cell, you have two other things going on. One, those cells should be extremely potent targets for NK cells. And if you've generated a strong tumor-specific T cell response, you should have a great deal of helper cytokine support as well as chemokine support drawing in the NK cells to sort of finish off the job for you in terms of clearing out the class 1 deficient cells. A second aspect to consider is there's some amount of non-MHC-specific bystander killing that may go on when you have a very strong response where you've got thousands of T cells infiltrating these tumors, which could be mediated by effector cytokines or innate immune cells, again, such as NK cells, sort of cleaning up the hangers-on after the T cells have done their work. There's also a possibility, too, you know, we've seen instances of cytotoxic CD4 cells, which can recognize and kill cells via the MHC2 pathway. So even theoretically, if you've lost class 1 but still have class 2 intact, that may provide another uh, avenue for actually antigen-specific killing of tumor-initiating cells. Michael, it's wonderful talking to you today. This is a great overview of your talk, and I'm really excited about it next month. And thanks again for taking the time. Of course. Thanks for having me. That was Michael Kern of the MD Anderson Cancer Center. He'll be speaking at the Antibodies for Cancer Therapy track at the upcoming PEG Summit, taking place on May 4th and 5th in Boston. If you'd like to hear him in person, go to pegsummit.com for registration information and enter the key code podcast. I'm Christina Lingham. Thank you for listening.